1: Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher.
0: Hi, this is Desi Jettigan.
1: It's the last week of Halloween
0: month. That's what I wrote. So it's our last week of Halloween month. Did you write so? I did write so. <laughs> I did. I don't know. Sometimes I write conversationally. Yeah, I do too. I'm really used to writing that style Yeah, from when I wrote for um, articles and stuff. Oh, no. <sighs> That was my thing. Yeah. I didn't write really formally. It was like, hey, babes. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, bitches. Um, Yeah. So should we get um, Mm -hmm. Patreon out of the way?
1: Yeah. Let's (laughs) thank the people who subscribed to our Patreon this past week. We have a Patreon page. It's called patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime (laughs) Scene.
0: That's what it's called. what it's (laughs)
1: called? That's where you can find it. There's a bunch of shit up there. If you want more content... If you want ad-free episodes, other shows we do, yeah, subscribe to our Patreon for as little as five dollars a month. All of that can be yours. I might repeat some names from last week because okay. we didn't we didn't delete those ones. So if you get a double thank you, we love you. <laughs> Joe, Jesse, Emma, Chelsea, Justin, Juliet, Molly, Cedric, Julie, Stuart, Megan, Natalie, Dolly, Carolyn, Christine, and Shayla. Thank you very much. Thank
0: you guys so much. Um, okay. So the story we're going to tell today is definitely a gruesome, horrible story. There's, It's not a lighthearted story this week, I'm sorry to say. Uh, it is. Uh, it inspired one of the more disturbing horror movies of the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. The Poughkeepsie Tapes. You never saw it, uh, correct? No, but this is a cult classic. Right. So this is a movie that was made in 2007, but it kind of had a lot of back and forth before it was actually released in 2014. I think it was even video on demand briefly before it like got a bigger release, Um, This movie is a pseudo-documentary horror film. It's a found footage. Yes. I'm going to get to that. (laughs) (laughs) It's about the murders of a serial killer in Poughkeepsie, New York. It is told through interviews and found footage um, showing the killer snuff films. So these are films. We see the stories of these victims from the point of their abduction to the post-mortem mutilation of the victims. The movie was definitely criticized for being a little too disturbing. One critic, Michael Gingold, called the film a creepy yet frustrating experience, experience, and he criticized it for not giving enough insight into the reasons why the villain brutalized and slew his victims. I mean, this is kind of what we all want in real cases. We want to know why, and you don't always get that answer. uh, Why? I don't know why... Maybe because it was made to be like a found
1: footage style, but that's a, that's an interesting criticism. That's a funny criticism
0: to me that, mm. that that we didn't get a reason why. Yeah, I mean, I have seen movies where their backstory is a little too 2D, like, and there isn't anything. But I don't, I don't think in real life we always get a reason why. No, so it doesn't necessarily. Um, have to happen in a movie either. Right. Um, that's part of what's so frustrating. And I think why it's of an interesting topic to people. People want to figure out why, and we can't. <laughs> um, so one of the killer's victims in the movie is a teen named Cheryl Dempsey. He imprisons Cheryl in his basement. He abuses her sexually, physically, psychologically, and she's basically his slave, according to him. Although the movie is influenced by numerous infamous true crime cases, this particular storyline in the film is heavily influenced by the story of Colleen Stan, and according to this is according to the director John Dowdle, Dodle, Dowdle. <laughs> it's a funny name, uh, <laughs> including uh, the way the killer in the movie kept his victim in a wooden box. My main source for this episode is a book called Perfect Victim. It is written by Christine McGuire, who was the prosecutor on the case. Uh, I also used a lot of old newspaper articles, as well as watching this extensive interview with Colleen Stan. Uh, That's from 2016, I think. It's online if you want to look for it. Uh, It wasn't a part of a show or anything. It's just an interview with her. So let's get into um, Colleen's story, which uh, as horrific as it is, it's really a story of survival because it's incredible what she went through and, and to come out on the other side is just wild. Colleen was born on New Year's Eve, 1956. She was the oldest of three sisters and she describes her life growing up as pretty average. She grew up in Riverside, California. Her mom was a citrus grower, so she grew up surrounded by citrus groves. Her parents were divorced early on and they would all sort of like, they had the typical relationship, living with a mom, visiting the dad on the weekends. It was a pretty amicable divorce, but this mostly idyllic life disappeared when the mom remarried a man that was not the nicest and kind of hated children, which is a weird thing to to marry a woman with kids. Yeah. Uh, Not smart. At 14, she moved in with her dad and a year later, her sisters joined them. Her senior year, she fell in love and quit school and got married. A year later, she was divorced and she had to move back home. And Colleen was like a fiercely independent, artsy, free spirit type. And she really didn't like the confines of being under her dad's rules. Uh, She met some new friends in Riverside. Their names were Bob and Alice. They were a couple with a baby and they really hit it off when they offered to have Colleen join them in Eugene, Oregon. She jumped at the chance. On Thursday, May 19th, 1977, Colleen decided to hitchhike 400 miles to Westwood, California, not the LA Westwood. This is in upstate, kind of close to Reno, like California, upstate California. Uh, She was going to surprise her friend Linda on her birthday. And she told Bob and Alice that she would be back on Saturday. When she wasn't back that weekend, her roommates got nervous. They called Colleen's mom to see if she had extended her trip to visit family. No. They eventually got in touch with Linda and found out Colleen had never even made it to Westwood. Now they're panicked. They're like, what happened to Colleen? No one knew where she was or what had happened. Colleen did make it to Red Bluff, which was about 100 miles from Westwood, and she was on a highway overpass trying to find a ride for the last leg of her trip. She had hitchhiked this whole way. Wow. Wow. Now, she was an experienced hitchhiker. We've discussed this before in 70s cases. (laughs) Everyone was hitchhiking. Yeah. And it was like a pretty normal thing to do. She had like little rules she had set for herself, uh, like how to judge whether or not it was a ride she felt safe taken. So she did take things into consideration. The first car that stopped for her that day was a car full of young, rowdy guys. And she was like, no, I'm going to like wait um, the next up was a young couple. They seemed safe, but they weren't going as far as she wanted to go. About 40 minutes after she started hitchhiking, a blue two-door Dodge Colt pulled up. Inside was a young couple with an eight-month-old baby. So she immediately was like, this is a safe ride, a couple with a baby. Like It doesn't get better than that. So she gets in the car. They have some casual conversation. She tells them about her plans. They tell her the reason they're driving towards Westwood is they wanted to check out these ice caves that they had heard about. But soon after getting in the car, Car Colleen begins to feel a little uncomfortable. She notices that the man was constantly checking her out in the rearview mirror. But of course, she kind of talked herself out of this fear, reassuring herself that this is a couple with a baby and it couldn't be a safer ride. She also, you know, didn't want to be rude to these nice people who are generously giving her this ride. So she keeps up the small talk, trying to keep the um, situation like good. They eventually stop for gas and Colleen goes to use the restroom. Now, according to Colleen, Something happened when she was in the bathroom. A voice inside of her head spoke to her, telling her to jump out the window, run, and never look back. But once again, she told herself to stop being so paranoid. She washed up, went back to the car, uh, ignoring that voice that was something that would haunt her for the rest of her life. When she got back to the car, there was something in the back seat that wasn't there before. It was a large wooden box. <gasps> After driving a bit more, the man said they were going to stop again uh, to check out these ice caves that were down this long dirt road. Colleen felt like she had no choice but to go along with it since after all these people were giving her a ride, she can't really complain. They drove off the highway to a deserted area and nobody was around. They parked and the family all got out of the car, but Colleen stayed inside. She watched as the woman and the baby went to a nearby creek. They were sort of splashing around in this creek. And the man was nowhere to be seen. Colleen didn't even know where he had gone. Just as she began to wonder about where the man was, he suddenly opened the the car door, got into the back seat next to her, and put a knife up to her throat. (gasps) Colleen recalled freezing as he put handcuffs on her. The man asked her if she was going to do what he told her to do, and she said yes. He put a crude fabric restraint on her face that made it impossible for her to scream or open her mouth, and he laid her down in the back seat. She finally found out what the box was for. This crude plywood box that was insulated with padding was placed on her head and locked. This head box was designed to prevent light, sound, and even most fresh air from entering. So obviously this is incredibly claustrophobic and fucking scary. Yeah. He then covers with her with her sleeping bag that she had with her. Colleen said she heard the wife and child get back in the car and she noticed right away that the wife didn't say anything, which really made panic set in cuz she's like she she knew the woman was in on it and Jesus. it just like completely fucked her up mentally. She could feel them driving again and they ended up driving all around Red Bluff, Red Bluff, waiting for night to fall so they could transport transport Colleen without anyone seeing her. The car finally stops at the couple's home on Oak Street. Colleen's headbox is removed, but she's then blindfolded and still has this face constraint on. She could see a sliver under the blindfold uh, and kind of tracks that she's going into this house through the kitchen uh, and down these stairs to a basement. There she is uncuffed, undressed, and she's immediately suspended by her wrist from the ceiling, uh, and he he kind of puts her in a box, suspends her, and then kicks the box away. Uh. So it's incredibly painful because she's just hanging by her wrist. She said that he then whipped her, and at some point she actually blacks out from the pain and the stress of the situation. When she wakes up, she sees under the sliver of her blindfold um, like a sort of intense BDSM magazine that's open to a picture of a woman hanging from the ceiling. This is on sort of sitting on a table open. On the floor below, next to the table, the couple is having sex. Jesus. She's horrified. And she said that she thought to herself at this time, who are these people? Like she just couldn't wrap her head around who these people are. Those people were 23-year-old mill worker Cameron Hooker and his wife, 19-year-old Janice. So a little backstory on the Hookers. Janice met Cameron when she was just 15 years old. Uh, He was 19, working at a nearby mill. And Cameron made Janice feel very special. Uh, He seemed like the perfect guy, especially to someone like Janice, who was not from a necessarily abusive home, but it was definitely a neglectful one. And like most teenage girls, she obviously had her fair share of insecurities. Um, One of the main things she was sort of insecure about was that she had epilepsy. And this is also something that led to some of the neglect from her father in particular, who believed the epilepsy was actually like demonic possession. And he he didn't want to be around her because of this. So she was really ripe for the picking as far as a groomer would go and Cameron was that guy very early on Janice ignored red flags and focused on the good. This was after all, the only person giving her any validation at the time. And she didn't want to lose that. Her parents let her marry him when she was just 16 years old. Uh, and her sister had also tried to get married at this age and they refused. And this was also something very hurtful to Janice, even though she wanted to get married, she was kind of like, you, you let me get married because <laughs> you want to get rid of me basically. Right. And that's, that's the truth. Now Cameron was from a family that had moved around a lot, but other than that, the opposite of Janice is a pretty normal, loving, happy family. His family had moved to Red Bluff when he was 16 and he was a loner, but there was no real behavioral issues or he wasn't like the type of guy. People were like, that kid's weird. He, yeah. he just was a loner, uh, whatever. It was around this age that he also developed an interest in bondage and began buying fetish magazines to sort of immerse himself in that world. When he met Janice, he finally had someone to experiment with. He was very excited to finally fulfill these fantasies he had had of uh, participating in this. Unfortunately, Janice was not into it, but Cameron continued to pressure her, threatening her that maybe it's not going to work out if you don't uh, help me out with these fantasies that I have. So she does agree. So obviously, let's do the disclaimer. Consensual bondage is obviously fine. There are a lot of rules uh, going into a relationship like that. Uh, uh, Cameron doesn't do any of that stuff. Uh, Janice, even though she goes along with it, is a very unwilling participant, and she doesn't like what's happening. Yeah. Uh, so, and obviously, he does even worse stuff later on. But yeah, this is—he's uh, not doing the correct way you would do some a relationship like this. So. Especially the, the consent aspect.
1: I mean, that's like
0: a huge, <laughs> yeah. That's the foundation. Yeah. Of it. I mean, he, he's, he likes not having consent, right. in fact. So, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and also, I just want to clarify she is 15 during this period. Like, wow. so she's a young girl. Um, so it starts off with more basic bondage stuff and eventually escalates to him doing things like tying her up and dunking her into a lake. And she almost drowns the first time he does this to her. So he's not even particularly safe about these things that he wants to do. She basically gets through this torture because afterwards, Cameron will be very loving and comforting to her. So she kind of suffers through this, hoping to have that at the end, uh, which is uh, sad. But Janice starts to tire of this lifestyle and she wants a baby. So she makes a deal. She says that Uh, he can allow her to have a baby and she will allow him to kidnap a non-willing woman to make into his sex slave. This is the deal that they come up to come up with. The only rule that she has about it is that he is not allowed to have penetrative sex with a woman that is for Janice only. Cameron immediately goes into planning mode, uh, as well as constructing this like low budget dungeon with, um, implements of torture, including a rack and hooks in the ceiling. And he makes all of this himself, including all the box, the head box he makes. He makes like all of the rudimentary um, devices that he use, uses. Cut to May 19th when they see Colleen Stan hitchhiking on the side of the road. That is their perfect victim. So back at the house now on Oak Street, after the couple have finished having sex, Colleen is unhooked. Uh, the head back Box is put back on her and she's then put inside another box. Now, this box is um, for her body. There's a hole cut out for her head, but her head has another box on top of it as well. So, inside that box, she's also chained. Janice struggles all night to breathe in this head box. And obviously, Janice? I'm sorry, um, Colleen struggles all night to breathe in this head box. And obviously, like, You and I both have like anxiety and panic disorder stuff. The more she panics, the harder it is to breathe, right? Uh, this is like just that's like my nightmare to be in this situation. It's awful. So, uh, she basically just prays all night to just get through the night with her breathing and she just has to focus on getting the air that she can. In the morning, he is back, he removes the head box briefly as he ties her to a table. Uh, He then puts the box back on her on the table and leaves her again. She's naked, by the way, all this time. Like He doesn't clothe her. Meanwhile, her family is looking for her. This is four days now um, past when they last um, heard from her. And they actually file a missing persons report in Eugene. Days turn into weeks and nothing happens. Colleen's parents began their own search, retracing her route from Eugene to Westwood, filing missing persons reports along the way in every town they stop in. Her parents actually stay at a motel right down the street from where Janice is in the house. (gasps) Uh, Like unknowingly, obviously. Isn't that awful to find out after the fact? Uh, She seemingly vanished into thin air. There's no clues, uh, so law enforcement can't do anything. There's just no evidence of anything happening. And it's, you know, the time period where people are like, yeah, she's a hippie. She probably went off with some group of people. And you know what I mean? It's like yeah. that kind of thing happening. After a month, they really started fearing the worst and we're really losing hope they would ever uh, find her again. Colleen is in hell. She is kept in this box 23 hours a day, taken out only to be tortured. I'm not going to get into like everything that happens to her, because I just don't think it's necessary. We know it's bad, and she is still suffering today from shoulder and back injuries from the events that took place, mm-hmm. just being held up by her wrist, et cetera. Uh, she's put on this rack, which we oh. know is awful and, and stretches you to the point of like almost breaking. So she still suffers physical effects from what happened to her during this period. She basically only knew fear and pain. He controlled every aspect of her life, even watching her as she used the bedpan that he would bring her a few times a day. Like, she had no privacy. Cameron once threatened her when she first came that if she made a sound, he would cut her vocal cords, adding that he had done it before. So she would never scream. Even during this torture, she would not make a sound. Uh, She learned quickly that survival meant complete obedience. When allowed to speak, she would ask Cameron when he would release her, and he would always say pretty soon, but the false hope of that was gone the minute she realized Cameron was building a more permanent cage for her beneath the staircase. Colleen is finally released from her shackles so she can help Cameron build her own prison. He is building uh, a box under the staircase that is six foot long and three foot high uh, so, inside this box, it is a complete sensory deprivation. Not only is it dark, but when he puts her in there at night, he puts earplugs in as well. So, she's just can't hear or see. She speaks in this interview about coming out after being in the box and like her eyes take forever to adjust because right. she's just like in darkness all the time. So, now obviously, sleep deprivation is something. You know, people can use that in small doses to relax and quiet their mind. Um obviously sleep deprivation. I'm sorry, uh, sensory, sensory sensory deprivation uh. and sleep deprivation. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no that's, that's torture. That's torture. So uh Obviously, experiencing this long-term will break someone. It's called white torture. It's a form of psychological abuse that governments, including our own, use on political prisoners and obviously against prisoners who are put in long-term solitary confinement. It's a really devastating thing to do to someone's psyche and can lead to depression and suicide. Jesus Christ. So it's no wonder that when Colleen is released to work on her box, She's almost grateful for this freedom. And this is one of the first signs that she's in the beginning stages of Stockholm Syndrome. She starts becoming very grateful for any little thing that she gets, even if it's like a scrap of food, because he also doesn't really feed her a ton. It's during this period she notices a picture of a young woman propped up on this table that he has where he keeps his bondage magazines. And she never asks about who it is because she's just too afraid, but it's, it's something that stands out to her. In January of 1978, eight months after being kidnapped, Cameron hands Colleen a paper to read. This paper is a contract that makes her his slave for life. She uh, is to be referred to as a new name, just the letter K, and is forced to call him Master and Sir. She's not allowed to talk without permission, she's not allowed to wear underwear, and she must wear a collar. Now, he's very inspired by a 1954 French erotic novel called The Story of O. That's kind of like a classic um, story as far as that bondage and et cetera goes. I know a lot of guys who always bring that up, and it's kind of like, hmm, <laughs> what's going on? Um, he also signed the contract under his like master name, which he calls Michael Powers, Come which on. is just so gross. Janice signs as their witness. And uh, he kind of creates this contract. It's based on something he found in one of these SM magazines. Obviously, he takes out all the mentions of consent and everything else that's in the official contract. Right. He also creates it himself with a calligraphy stencil to make it very ornate and like official seeming. And this is something he does that we're going to get more into right now. He also informs... Colleen, that he is a part of a powerful underground slave trading organization called The Company. This organization watches over her and would painfully torture her and her family if she ever tried to escape. He actually fabricates the story that Janice was a former escaped sex slave that he so graciously saved from torture and he was able to rehabilitate her um, hands and knees because they were crushed and mutilated by The Company when she tried to escape. She, bu- she buys this. Yeah. It's very similar to like a friend of the family. Yes. The guy, he creates this alien thing. And Janice, uh, I'm sorry, Colleen believes this 100%. And this really is the thing that keeps her in line, uh, the the fear of the company. She signs the agreement and she's actually starting to, she starts to get some perks. She's given a nightgown and she's no longer confined to the basement 23 hours a day. She's now allowed to be in the main house to do chores uh, but obviously, she's still under strict control not to look anyone directly in the eye or speak unless spoken to. Janice also begins joining in the threats, telling Colleen that if she so much as stepped outside, it was the equivalent of shooting herself in the head because the company would know immediately and she would be killed. Having more contact with Janice, Colleen quickly realizes that Janice is incredibly jealous of Colleen's relationship in quotes, obviously, with Cameron, she said that Janice treated her like she was the other woman, like it was something that Colleen wanted to be there with her husband, which is obviously not the case. Yeah, Up to this point, uh, Cameron had stuck to his rule that Janice laid down regarding penetrative sex, which in his mind obviously allowed for oral rape as well as vaginal and anal rape using toys. Emboldened by the success of his sick plan, Cameron breaks the one rule Janice had for uh, him and committed penetrative rape as Janice watched in their bed. Janice loses it and Cameron obviously is like, I promise I I won't do it again. Uh, Unfortunately, this is a lie. And going forward, he does continue to uh, rape uh, Colleen only when Janice leaves the house though, so she doesn't find out again. At this point, Colleen believes that she'll die being their slave, like she will be there for life. And now we'll take a break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. Visit betterhelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com slash HCS. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? On April 28th, 1978, 11 months after her abduction, the Hookers put the headbox on on Colleen, take her outside to the car and start driving. Now, obviously she is in a panic. She doesn't know what's happening and in her mind she's like they're taking me somewhere to kill me. But what's actually happening is that they're all moving to a mobile home in a more secluded area that's also a non-rental because Cameron started getting stressed that the landlord could pop over or whatever. So at this new place, obviously there's no basement because it's a mobile home and Colleen is horrified to discover that Cameron's solution to this is that he has constructed a wooden box, which is hidden in the platform under the couple's waterbed. There is a hole drilled into the side of the platform that Colleen must climb through every night to get into her box at the end of the day. Every night while she's inside, she's hearing everything that the couple does, whether it's torturing Janet, Janice, the couple just having sex. And she even hears Janice give birth to the couple's child on this waterbed while she's inside. They have another baby? Yes. So although this new sleeping arrangement is obviously horrific... Colleen does start to get more freedom at the trailer. She is allowed to work in the garden. She starts t- being the caretaker to the children. She even gets to go jogging for 15 minutes. And obviously, this is highly monitored and stuff like that. Uh, she's so terrified of the company that she never strays. And like I mentioned earlier, she's so grateful for these little gifts that she doesn't even think of like leaving She's also given a gift, a copy of the Bible. She's very, like, she's very religious, and that even heightens during this experience. He would allow her to read the Bible locked um, in the bathroom on the toilet, like chained to the toilet to read the Bible. But the biggest freedom she got was also one that would come back to haunt her later at trial. In March of 1981, Colleen was allowed to visit her family. Cameron told her he was able to convince the company to let her. He also told her that it was a test, so she better be careful because they were watching every move she made. He even stopped at the company headquarters, whatever, he probably just went into some random building, on the way. He got back into the car after being gone a long time, and he said the person he spoke to told him to tell her, good luck. The first day, Colin, I'm sorry, the one, they go they get there they arrive and Colleen goes by herself Colleen would later say she didn't say anything to them out of fear of the company her family they thought she would they knew something was wrong they're like something's not right this is not the Colleen we know they thought that she was possibly involved in a cult because she was wearing homemade clothes obviously she had no money there was all this lack of communication over the years and she was extremely thin like she had lost a lot of weight They also were worried if they pressured her by asking too many questions that she would stay away forever and they would never see her again. Hooker picks her up and meets the family. Cameron meets the family and he is introduced as her boyfriend. They even snap a picture of Cameron and Colleen together like posing as girlfriend and boyfriend and they're both smiling and look super happy. This decision will later haunt her, as I mentioned, um, was this photo of the, that the family took. Uh, she claims this happiness was due to seeing her family and not have, it didn't have anything to do with him. But the happiness was short-lived because when they returned to the trailer, Cameron worried he had given her too much freedom. He told her to say goodbye to the kids and the neighbors she had met while jogging and Colleen remained in the box under the waterbed 23 hours a day for the next three years. Jesus, she is only allowed to come out at night while the kids are sleeping, so no one will see her.
1: And these kids are like, how old now? Uh, like,
0: no, they're older. They're like, I think at this point, like six and four, maybe.
1: Holy shit! So they're they like
0: con- they notice things, right? Like yeah. for sure. In the interview I saw, she said that she survived this period by going places in her mind. Like that's what oh. she would do while in this box. I I, I don't know how she did it. It wasn't until 1984 that Colleen is reintroduced to the children and neighbors. Everyone is kind of like, Kay's back, like as if nothing had happened. Janice excitedly tells everyone this news. Uh, but this wasn't great. Like the reason she was let out was because Cameron wanted to build an underground dungeon and he needed help. Ugh. So she got there in the backyard or whatever Digging this hole f- to create this dungeon, she he taught her how to lay bricks. Like she literally helped him build this thing from the ground. I guess not the ground, but whatever up, and that would be where she lived once it was all done. So she wouldn't have to be under the water bed anymore. Like once again, this is like sold as like a good thing for her. Right. You don't have to be in the wa- under the water bed. It's like yeah, technically it's good, but also she's a prisoner here. Like yeah, so it's just like all of these sick psychological games are just nonstop. He also told her that more slaves would be joining her soon. So she was going to be the one who trained them, according to him. And he kind of really is you know, building her up by saying, like, you're the main girl, and one day you'll get your own trailer. He also says he eventually wants her to be his second wife. Uh, shortly after this, Janice sees her two little girls and a, and a cousin have found this torture shed dun- dungeon, like they're looking in it. And this is like where Janice starts sort of breaking, like, what's happening? We're going to get caught, et cetera.
1: So two kids in the neighborhood? Her two
0: kids oh. and a cousin oh. come upon the dungeon being built or like lift something and see stuff. So they're like in a panic for weeks after this, thinking the cousin might say something yeah. or whatever. So unbelievably at this time, uh, Cameron tells Colleen that she needs to get a job to pay fees to the the company, So he gets her a job as a maid at a local motel to help pay these fines. She becomes very close to a coworker and tries to talk about her life without giving up too many details. But obviously the coworker is disturbed by even the little glimpses she gets of Colleen's life because it's like, I sleep in the living room. They take home my paychecks, like Ah. all of this kind of stuff. And the coworker is like, that doesn't sound good. Uh, Obviously she doesn't talk about the more disturbing stuff, but even that is like, disturbing. yeah. Janice is really falling apart at this point and she's kind of starts softening towards Colleen and they really bond over religion. Janice begins taking Colleen out of the box when Cameron is at work and they read the Bible together. Janice really relates to the story of Sarah, Abraham, and Hagar. Uh, Sarah is unable to have her husband's children. So he brings Hagar into the relationship to bear the children and Janice is like, I'm Sarah and you're Hagar. Like, you take the torture for me. Like, that's how she kind of twists the story to be about them in a way. They start going to church together and they become really close to this church's pastor. Janice becomes more and more anxious about it all because when she's going to church, she's constantly hearing these stories that obviously, I mean, I don't know how she doesn't know what she's doing is wrong, but it's sort of solidifying in her mind that what she's doing is very wrong and evil. And she eventually confides in the pastor, not about the extent of it. It's almost more of like, hey, I'm in this love triangle type deal. Uh, So she kind of softens it. Even the softened version, though, the pastor is like, God does not approve of what you're doing. So if only he knew the real deal. But still, she goes one step further and she tells Colleen that the company is all a lie. Now... This is devastating to Colleen because the whole reason she has done any of this is because of the company. So not only is she in fear and pain and everything else, now she feels like an absolute fool. This is according to her, not me. I'm not calling her that. She's like, I'm an idiot. I'm embarrassed of what I've put up with because I believe this lie. Regardless of that, she finishes her shift at her job because she has to go to work. So she goes in, finishes her shift with this new knowledge. She can't leave, they can't, Janice actually tells her this at work, I'm sorry I missed that part, but uh, they can't escape at this moment because the kids are at home with uh, Cameron. They have to go back to the house. So they have to spend one more night at the house knowing knowing that the company is a lie and that Janice is also planning on leaving Cameron. When he goes to work the next day, obviously, uh, they both are out. That day is August 10th, 1984. Colleen just walks out the door finally after being confined there for all these years. She calls her dad who wires her money to get a bus ride. Before she leaves, she calls Cameron at work and tells him that she's leaving. She tells him that she knows he lied about everything and that he doesn't control her anymore. And he burst into tears like a baby and starts I, bawling. I hate this fuck. He's awful. So after 2,634 days, she's finally free. Oh. In the interview I saw, she's like, I just, I had overwhelming joy. And I remember being on the bus thinking, did everyone, was they were they looking at me? Like, why is she so happy? Uh, and that was like what she had this whole ride down Now, her journey to freedom, unfortunately, is not over yet because she still has to deal with a lot of this aftermath. After she's free, as I mentioned, she has feelings that she's been foolish. She's embarrassed. Uh, She also has guilt. Back home, she tells her family finally what happened, that she was abducted and has been held hostage all these years, but she refuses to go to the police. Uh, she tells her family that just to let her handle it. At the same time, Janice is now talking to her and begging her not to go to the police. She asks Colleen to give Cameron a chance to reform. She actually says to her, "We owe him that
1: that uh, chance uh, to what?
0: reform." Are you fucking kidding me, bitch! <laughs> I know. Janice did move to her parents that day that Colleen left, but that was that lasted like a week, and she moved back with Cameron uh, a week later with the kids. She began uh, taking him to church and thinking she could change him. Come on. The ultimate, like, I can change him. Yeah, this is like (laughs) the ultimate delusional, I can change him. Colleen at this point is just like, I just want to move on. Like, I don't want to think about this anymore. I want to... Get back with my family. Like, she had to rebuild all these relationships. Uh, And she was like, I wanna have a normal life again. That was like her motivation. So she kind of was like, fine, I won't say anything because I don't wanna deal with it. Yeah. Janice, though, eventually confesses everything to a friend, and the friend, tells her immediately, like, you have to go to the police. But Janice, of course, is still in that, no, I'm working on him. We're going to figure it out. The friend finally says to her, how do you know he won't do this to your daughters? Mm. And that is the straw that finally breaks Janice's like back or whatever, her spell, whatever she's going through. Later that day, Colleen gets a call from Janice, who is crying. She tells Colleen that people will be coming to talk to her soon. She has finally gone to the police and turned her husband in, and obviously they're going to interview Colleen immediately. Now, not only does Janice tell the police about how her husband had kidnapped a woman and held her captive for seven and a half years, she also tells them he killed another woman. The Red Bluff sheriff calls the Chico police, which is where Colleen says the woman was kidnapped in January of 1976. They get a hit. Colleen, Janice. I'm said, sorry, Janice said that. Okay. I'm so sorry. I messed up the name sometimes. They get a hit. A 21-year, I'm sorry, a 20-year-old woman named Mary Elizabeth Spinaki, who is called Marlies, or Marliz, was reported missing on January 31st of that year and was still missing. The story Janice tells is eerily similar to Colleen's kidnapping. The couple picked up Marliz after she had a fight with her boyfriend and was walking home. And they, the I'm sorry, Cameron immediately gets out of the car and subdues her and pulls her into the car. He has the head box then. He puts that on her head. And they once again drive around until it's nightfall. Even pulling over at some point to eat cheeseburgers in the car while she's immobilized in the back seat, terrified. She is eventually taken to the same basement and it's here that we learn the origin of the story Cameron told about cutting someone's vocal cords. (gasps) Marlies did scream and Cameron, who didn't know what the fuck he was doing, tried to cut her vocal cords so she couldn't make uh, noise and basically fucked up and she was bleeding out and then he ended up shooting her. Janice then helped him dispose of the body, driving it somewhere in the middle of nowhere and burying it. Unfortunately, this testimony by Janice is the only evidence they had regarding Marliz's disappearance. Janice was able to secure immunity for not only testifying against her husband, but for agreeing to help authorities find Marliz's remains. And the search was ultimately unsuccessful though, because it's just too, there was too much, they were driving around forever and she just couldn't remember. Police then obviously go to talk to Colleen. She... She surprises them because she comes off very normal and calm and cool collected, not what they're expecting. Uh, but she basically confirms everything that Janice told them. She also said that she had some info about Marliz. She realizes that Marliz is the woman in the picture that she saw in the basement. It was like her high school portrait, yeah. like a something she probably had in her wallet or purse. And she realizes that the only thing that saved her from Marliz's fate that night was the fact that she didn't scream when Cameron threatened to cut her vocal cords, which is also chilling because Marliz definitely was killed by him. I mean, I don't think anyone doubts that. 11 days after Janice goes to the cops on November 18th, 1984, Cameron is finally arrested. Investigators search his place and they find the head box. They find other torture devices. Obviously, they see the new dungeon that's being created. They they found pictures of all kinds of torture of Colleen and Janice and I think other victims. Uh, so this is the biggest case ever in Tahamsa Tahoms, County, uh, and it's assigned to a prosecutor, the only woman in the department, Christine McGuire. She immediately recognizes that there's some difficulties in this case. The two hurdles uh, is that was... Was Colleen truly unable to leave? That's going to be something she has to prove. She knows the defense is going to sort of cite that she had this job. She went home. All of these times she could have left. Why didn't she? She also knows that they're, they're planning on bringing up her prior sexual history. Nothing uncommon to us. This is the slut-shaming defense. Right. They're going to talk about how she wanted this and was into it. And this was all part of the game. The second hurdle for her was the victim, Colleen, was not an ideal witness because she was so calm and detached while telling the story. She knew that people were going to be questioning why she wasn't crying and more upset and fragile and all right. of this stuff. So she was she was worried the jury would see that as validation that she wasn't really traumatized by what happened and was probably involved in it. So Christine really focused on showing the jury how this sensory depth deprivation worked, how the lies and manipulations, and all of that was used to coerce Colleen into doing what she did. One of the things she did that was very effective was bringing the boxes into the courtroom and have, having people get into them. Wow! So it really sunk in the horror of these conditions that she lived in. Uh, Janice was, of course, one of their star witnesses, and she really told a horrifying story, uh, but people didn't like her. A lot of people were outraged that she got this immunity deal and thought that she was equal in these crimes as Cameron was. And that's definitely something to debate, I guess. Like I can see, but that happens a lot. People who are bad get immunity to get the real bad guy. Like that's something that happens a lot of times. And obviously people can make the case also that Janice was also a victim, uh, but she participated in this abuse of Colleen. So it's definitely tricky. Colleen did testify for three and a half days, and while people were shocked uh, she could recount what happened so calmly, the prosecutor was able to explain this seeming lack of fragility uh, by showing how she was really trained to keep it all in, and that was part of how she survived. Her testimony did bring tears Uh, to the juror's eyes, though, in particular when she spoke about praying to God and wondering if he even knows she was in the box.
1: (laughs) It's so sad. Are you crying? Yeah. (laughs) Oh.
0: Because it's like something you think as a kid, right? Like, I'm in the box. Does he know I'm here? Yeah. It's really sad. (laughs) Sorry. So the jurors were able to see volunteers enter the boxes, like I said, and some of their disbelief dissipated when they saw this, uh, and they started kind of buying into the prosecutor's story. So, it almost seemed like a slam dunk once the prosecution finished, but obviously the defense had some surprises up their sleeves. Now, the biggest bombshell the the defense presented was numerous love letters written to Cameron by Colleen. This was a major bombshell scandal when it broke. Uh, These letters were written while she was in captivity, also after she was free. She was writing him these letters still. So, they also had phone records showing Colleen had called the hooker house a ton of times while she was free. And this was not to talk to Janice because Janice was out of time out of town during some of these phone calls. And she was speaking to whoever was there, which was Cameron, for very long periods of time. Yeah. So that was very uh, suspicious to people. Other evidence was presented um, to prove that Colleen could leave at any time the freedom she had, obviously, the jogging, the shopping, the job, et cetera, the trip home. They, they submitted the picture of them posing together happily at the parents' house. And Cameron also said that he was actually the victim, Ugh. that these women were bickering over him and then started plotting against him. He said that Jan and Colleen were actually having sex and practicing bondage while he was at work. Uh, And even the news... I saw a clip of like a news story that was basically like, is she just a crazy slut? Like <gasps> it was like not, it was like, it was like almost that bad, but not exactly that. Like that was how the news was like, this story is crazy, but is she just crazy? Like, right. we don't know. Like it's always weird when you you see like a slam dunk prosecution and then they switch, the defense comes on and you're like, oh wait, <laughs> like, that We're, happens in TV a lot. Like, yeah. Um, but anyways, this case is obviously not that. But McGuire then had a great idea to bring this forensic psychiatrist in named Chris Hatcher. And he gave them, he schooled the jurors on how Stockholm syndrome works, how brainwashing works, how coercion works. And he was like a very convincing, excellent witness. So he really schooled the jurors on how Stockholm syndrome worked, how brainwashing and coercion work. And explain to them also how you can actually fall in love with your captor because at some point he becomes your sole savior. He's the only person you can rely on for uh, things you need to survive. And, you know, it's at this point they kind of grasp the concept of someone controlling you even without physical restraints. Like, so she was free, but she was still under his control. He is convicted of 10 of 11 counts and is sentenced to 104 years of prison. Thank God. I was like, I didn't find out what the one count he didn't get. <laughs> it actually might have been the murder because I do think they go after the murder of Marlis, but there just is no evidence. Right. Authorities described Cameron Hooker as the most dangerous psychopath they've ever dealt with. Janice files for divorce shortly after this, and for the most part, everyone just tries to get on with whatever a normal life looks like after experiencing something like this. Colleen does finally seek help, realizing she can't just move on from what happened, even if she's determined to to push forward. There's just too much she has to deal with. And she actually um, gets treated by Chris Hatcher, the psychologist who testified in her trial. In particular, she had to deal with the guilt and the embarrassment she felt regarding the things that the defense brought up in court, like why she didn't escape, et cetera. In the interview, she gave a quote that I think is very powerful and something a lot of people who have gone through trauma can take to heart. She said that Dr. Hatcher told her, It doesn't matter what you did while in captivity. You did everything right because you survived. Sorry.
1: She's not laughing. I'm not laughing. She laughs when she cries.
0: Um, And you lived. And that's very true.
1: It is.
0: So this truth finally set her free. Yeah. Anyway, that's the story. Sorry, it was a dark one. Um, Cameron is still in prison and he does try to get out on his parole hearings, but luckily never does. Yeah. Um, so he's still there and Janice and Colleen, Janice kind of has disappeared. Colleen obviously does still do interviews and, um, she's had a hard life, but, uh, I think she's been married like four times. She did have a child. She has a grandchild. So she's, you know, moved on the best that she can. And when you see her in these interviews, it's remarkable how well she's doing yeah so this interview I saw was from 2016 so it's pretty recent um but yeah she just continues to look forward to what time she has left and is living her life oh, and that's the story <laughs>
1: that was really well done I know this this is one of those stories I I, I know this story and it was I, I I could barely read the Wikipedia page on it when I first heard about this story yeah because it's so gnarly
0: The book is really good, but it goes into way more detail. So if you want that kind of thing, then the book is excellent for that. Right. But I didn't really go into a lot of it because I just don't want to. We're not going to do that today. No. So, but yeah, if you want to, it is a very, it's probably like one of the better true crime books I've read. And it's just because the prosecutor obviously has all the information. Right. And uh, it's just very detailed. So I know some people like to get all those details and you can read that book.
1: Well, thank you. We will see you all later this week for the mini episode and next week for our main
0: episode. Bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.